difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. Last week, we discussed Peter Weir's Gallipoli, a 1981 film about two young Australian men who meet at a race and eventually meet again in World War I, where they've both volunteered and they both end up in the trenches together. That film is mostly backstory, and it only gets to the war at the end. By contrast, Sam Mendes' 1917 doesn't have any backstory at all for its narrative about two young men in the World War I trenches. It launches with those two friends, Lance Corporal's Blake and Schofield, played by Dean Charles Chapman and George McKay, resting in a field when they're called up to deliver a message to a different unit while on the other side of the German front lines. That unit has an offensive planned for the next morning, but new aerial photography says they're walking into a trap, and all 1,600 men in the unit stand to die if they proceed with their charge. To add to the drama, Blake's older brother is in that unit. And so Blake and Show set off into a no-man's land that was a killing field the previous day. Peter Weir called Gallipoli a road-to-adventure movie, where the protagonist pair volunteered for action and seemed to think it's going to be a lark. But Blake and Show know they're headed into potentially fatal danger, and they find plenty of it, from German tripwires to a downed plane to a raging river, not to mention plenty of men with guns trying to kill them. Mendez shoots it all as a coordinated, unbroken shot, or at least as the illusion of one. Like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, 1917 takes breaks by zooming in on characters' backs or into dark places, but Mendez covers up those breaks almost seamlessly. And the takes we do get still take immense coordination, to the point where they almost detract from Roger Deakins' stunning cinematography and the skillfully modulated low-key performances. It's a startling film for a lot of reasons, built around style as much as story, and we'll dive into it right after this break. In your own time, gentlemen. Must be something big if the channel's here. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. So guys, I'm just going to fess up. I don't like war movies. I resisted seeing 1917 for so long. I passed up so many chances to see it in the theater. I only really reluctantly sat down with it at home because we were doing this podcast and I'm hosting this podcast and I couldn't get out of it. And on some level, I, I resented having to watch yet another war movie. This movie sold me within the first 60 seconds. Uh, oh man, we wanted to annoy you. The shot, God, the, the shot just of the two of them with that field in the background and McKay is, has his eyes closed and is asleep and it's just this moment of peace and you know it's not going to last. It's so beautifully composed and I knew about the gimmick of the film. I'd heard it described as, as very gimmicky and as just like an, an exercise in style over substance. 
But the way you meet those characters, like the pause of the moment, and then the way the film eventually wraps all the way around again to that first moment, as much of a gimmick as it may be, it's a gimmick that blew me away. I'm, I'm really curious what you made of this film. The Terrence Malick bookends. To oh it, my gosh, know? it's such a Terrence Malick film. You know, that's... Uh, I don't know if the whole film's fair. Those moments, at least. It's, but. well, okay, but here's the thing. We're not even into connections yet, but there's a moment in Gallipoli where Archie's writing home, and it's a voiceover in the middle of this chaos where he's dictating the letter. And I was like, is this where Malick got mm. it all? Like, this is the most Malicky moment I've ever seen outside a Malick film. But yeah, you're right. The bookends on 1917 also just have that very, very Malick, you know, a pause in the midst of chaos and the the unbelievably beautiful scenery kind of, kind of thing going on. Yeah, I like this movie. There's something about it that keeps me from putting both my arms around it and like fully bringing it to my heart. First, I'm not sure what that is because I think, you know, I do care about these characters. I think the performances are really good. I mean, you cannot deny the beauty of Roger Deakins filmmaking. You know, some people really do not care for it. And I find some of the criticism directed at it kind of do find a little little footy in my mind, which which is there is kind of a theme park ride to it. Like let's let's hit every possible World War One experience. Uh, I think the video game comparison feels kind of apt to I, I, I to the point where I feel like oh we must be at a safe point because there's a recognizable British character. <laughs> um, that said, I mean I, I find it you know I think it's a, a thrilling piece of filmmaking. It may not necessarily bring anything new to World War One beyond the style. And there is, um, I think there's sort of reluctance to even to dig into what World War One was beyond a staging ground for these uh, experiences. But, uh, you know, I think in some ways, like 10 years from now, this could be a very influential film or could still kind of look like a novelty in some ways. But I'm, I'm curious to find out. Scott, what do you, what'd you think? I'm a little bit on, uh, on the more pessimistic side mm. with this one. It's a technical marvel and it's, it's thrilling to watch i've seen it a couple of times and could watch it at any point it is very exciting i mean it is sort of a you know world war one the ride kind of mm. um and there's something f weirdly liberating about it compared to other world war one movies and that they're able to traverse that much territory in, sure. in that little time i mean that is really antithetical to what you see of world war one movies and there's some opportunities there that Mendes takes advantage of, of of showing you the sort of haunted aspects of things that had happened before of of uh abandoned trenches and of you know men draped over thickets of barbed wire and of, of uh, you know bombed out villages i mean all that stuff is all vivi very vividly rendered but i did feel like it was a style over substance thing for me i didn't feel like it was a terribly nourishing film overall as anything more than just an experiential movie which you know which was significant in that respect but uh, I, I didn't think there's a lot of depth there what'd you think genevieve I, I have to say this is not how i expected the chips to fall <laughs> in this discussion <laughs> because i took a lot of the same biases as tasha into watching this film and i had a, a very similar reaction to her i really loved this movie and i saw it i saw it in the theater and i think I'm usually not too precious about like, this is a movie you have to see in a theater, but this is a movie that I would like strongly advise a theatrical experience for. And the reason why kind of relates to this style over substance criticism that I kind of bristle at, because to my mind, the style is the substance. And I reacted to the style emotionally. Like I cried several times during this film and I was not expecting to. But the reasons I cried had less to do with what was happening to the characters and more to do with 
just what I was seeing on screen. I think I've talked before on this podcast about uh, how I I, uh, come down with spectacle tears a lot, just when I'm seeing filmmaking spectacle. I get it a lot at Broadway shows too, like during opening numbers, just when, when the visuals and the oral components are just like hitting at such a high level and it just, it hits something in me. And I, I got that a lot in this movie. But also just like kind of I was reacting to it on a, a storytelling level, again, more than more than a, a character level. Like I love movies that move from point A to point B. And like this is maybe the most linear movie I can think of, like, <laughs> like, like compared to something like Dunkirk, which is another war movie that sort of upends the traditional style of a war movie. But whereas like with Dunkirk, I felt like I was responding more to the the style component on a, on an intellectual level and like really admiring what they were doing. Here I was just like you said, it's a little bit like a theme park ride. But again, I don't consider that. A, you love a, theme parks. <laughs> I do. But I love that theme park feel translated to a film because you don't get that that often achieved at this high of a level and i yeah i'm totally down for 1917 i'm gonna totally backtrack on on uh, i would not watch this on my ipad at the gym uh this is definitely <laughs> one I, it'll keep you walking to, to see it at the biggest screen possible preferably in a the theater i i'm glad i i did i saw it in the dolby house that we know so well from river east where we were abused while watching <laughs> Blade runner 2049 yeah. i still oh, have shaken baby stench syndrome yeah, from 2049 for context there's a specific movie house that they had decked out with so almost like a 4d kind of effect yeah there's with rumble the, seats that seats rumble would, whenever would rumble. the base and i think they gets I think serious it, i think they we talk it about down, it fairly so. extensively on our blade runner yeah but when, when i went to the press screening and it was in that house I'm like oh no yeah i think they figured out like people don't necessarily like that yeah uh, it's definitely been modulated down or maybe there's just no movie with that much base but uh yeah, like well, things like like rise of skywalker there was there was enough rumble in the movie to give you uh, kind of a like a sense of when things explode uh, but I haven't had that feeling of being violently shaken since then. seat warmers like in cars those fancy cars <laughs> that's what they should invest in. Okay then. Mr. I, Diversion I, you were saying seat warmers. Oh, it was, it was, it was really? just that. It was, yeah. yeah. They seat warmers? What? Yep. Uh, recliner and seat warmer. Huh. Okay, we have a new answer to that feedback uh, question <laughs> from the front, last one. New the, frontiers and falling asleep at movie theaters. The, the proper <laughs> way to see a five-hour movie is in a warmed seat <laughs> that if occasionally rumbles to keep you awake. during 1917, warm seat or not, I would probably go to the doctor because there'd be something wrong with me. If I, like, this was, this was a very tense movie experience right like like it, it kind of reminded me of watching uncut gems again talking oh, about wow. you know mo- movies that move but it also kind of again to go back to the whole style is the substance argument like this movie made me feel the reality of war in a way that war films rarely do and the immersiveness is i think a huge part of that and I think was the intent on Mendez's part. I do agree that it feels like a video game. Like I had that comment mm-hmm. myself uh, yeah, at one point during the film. I think when he was when he's running through the the burned out ruins of the the French city and he's ducking in and out of buildings and having different encounters and like especially ducking away from people shooting at him. There's a definite feeling of 
this is a quick time event. You know, you have to, you have to duck in here. You have to wait exactly four seconds. You have to run to the next building. You have to make sure to get under this window. You have to jump back out in time to shoot this person and then jump back in. Like it, it also has when he that dies feel. and gets another life. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, what about, what about the scene where he picks up the, the health pellets or whatever? Yeah. So yeah, I, I have that. I certainly get that feeling, but at the same time, I mean, um, games like Gears of War or Left 4 Dead that that have this kind of like rolling ongoing story where uh, like every chapter just follows every chapter and you're there in the middle of it. I do find them very immersive. I do find them very exciting. Genevieve, I get what you're saying about spectacle tears. Like I don't cry very often at the content of movies per se. But I I have been moved to tears on a number of occasions just by, I wouldn't personally call it spectacle. I'd, I'd call it just craft. Sometimes mm-hmm. there, are, there are times when films come together so perfectly for me uh, that I cry just at the, at, at awe. Basically, it's, it's a feeling of awe at being impressed by what human beings create. And there yeah. are like things like the, the ending of, of Lone Star. I think there was a mo- moment in Stranger Than Fiction, just when movies are spectacularly well put together and it impresses me. Sometimes I find myself moved to tears just because I'm so impressed. And this movie took me pretty close to that several times. I feel like the construction of real-time movies or oneers, as they call them, you know, one-shot, one-take uh, sequences, can often be very impressing but distancing at the same time because you're right. looking for the seams. You're thinking about, all right, how did they do that? In some cases here, you're wondering, all right, how much of this is CGI? How much of this was planned after the fact? Is there somebody just off camera, like, yelling instructions at them to make sure the timing works out? But the film, in this case, I just found it so well crafted that most of that dropped away from me most of the time. I've definitely seen the argument that like it's distracting, like the how did they do that element is, is distracting because you're you're looking for seams or you're, you know, like you said, looking for, for what's CGI. And I can understand that. That was not my experience at all. Like I think like I was like kind of cognizant in the back of my mind of like this is an impressive technical achievement and like it, it came to the foreground during that part I mentioned where he gets knocked out and comes back to several hours later, which did feel like a very sort of obvious save point i guess you know um <laughs> but 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 for the most part i was again just so immersed in the immediacy of what's happening like that i couldn't spare the the brain space to be distracted by the the how did they do that if i saw it on second viewing maybe that would happen but again i think that would make the uh viewing experience rewarding in a new way now that i've already experienced it in this very to my mind sort of purely visceral way i'd like to talk about the performances a little we we could talk about the cameos of of famous people like i suppose there is that sense of here's somebody famous it's a save point yeah and it's a little stunty i mean knowing Uh knowing benedict cumberbatch is in the movie uh you know pretty well who he's going to be like like fairly early I on, I didn't know. I just heard him show up. I thought it was absurd. That Seriously, they, that, yeah. you you didn't what? say? Well, why, why is Benedict Cumberbatch not allowed to be in other movies? No, I just thought. I just yeah, thought Scott. like I just thought to have him in the to have him at that end point was a little bit cheesy. It's but, the uh, the point that you're working towards in the movie is getting to meet Benedict Cumberbatch. It's clearly the the climax. I mean, I was in the movie to meet Richard Madden. I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I I think that this is the touching story of a couple of young boys being handed a message by Colin Firth and told to deliver it to, to Cumberbatch. And, you know, then they have to cross... After being warned by Mark Strong about Benedict Cumberbatch. And then they have to cross the, uh, the entirety of uh, Hollywood in order to do it. It's kind of under the Silver Lake with fewer weird clues and, and more gunfire. Speaking of Mark Strong, though, I do want to circle back to the performances, uh-huh. but I, I think this is a really interesting point. Mark Strong kind of sets up a dog that doesn't bark. Yeah. Like, Mark Strong sets up a very, uh, like, based on his instructions, you know, have have witnesses around you. Like, some men just like the fight. He's not going to take this message well. You're being set up for, a, like, an almost apocalypse now kind of confrontation at the end mm. with this commander who's, like, running rogue and and taking over and is like willing to do whatever he can to achieve power and has possibly gone mad. And what you get is something very different. And the sheer relief of that, like it's, it's like Chekhov's gun doesn't go off. And this particular Chekhov's gun is such a war movie cliche. I was so braced for it for half of the film. And then that dog doesn't bark. We get there and he takes the orders and he steps down and it was like, such a visceral relief for me, both that the movie wasn't, you know, both on behalf of of Schofield and his his trials, but also just on behalf of the movie's story. Like, like, thank you for not going down that path. It's <laughs> did odd, you it's did you feel it, disappointed? Not really, but it's an odd thing to set up and not follow through on. I it. feel like it does follow through on it. There, like, there he does push back a little, but but there are other people in the room, just yeah. like like Mark Strong said that that there needed to be, and I I think it highlights the fact that because we are so tied to Schofield and Blake's point of view, like we only know what they know, you know, and we only get information that they get through superiors. So you kind of need Mark Strong saying that in order to give you the context for that dynamic at the end where Benedict Cumberbatch's character reacts as he does, and the other men in the room kind of keep him from doing what Mark Strong warns he would do. So like, I I think that dog does bark, but it's just it's a very sort of short and to the point bark. It's one. It's one. It's kind of a one single bark. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're gonna we'll get to the comparison with Gallipoli later, but we were originally going to compare this with Children of Men, and uh, and then I saw Gallipoli again and said, oh no, we really have to do this, because basically what 1917 reminded me of was like, what if Gallipoli, but the ending from the player was imposed mm-hmm. upon it <laughs> you know it, what if what if it wasn't actually futile this message that had been rushed to the to the front lines yeah and, that's a, i don't it know it wasn't but, futile a lot of men died yeah i was gonna say there's a there's an awful lot of kidding killing for it to be a cop-out ending yeah and yet people like, like two waves die, had already though. gone over yeah but you know I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a qualified victory, which I think is a pretty reasonable victory to to give in a way. I know I, it's glib, but I'm just I'm making the point. <laughs> um, another thing that's interesting that I think about it because I've been again I've been steeped in two things lately: uh, <laughs> World War One movies and Sam Mendes movies. Sam Mendes is kind of finding himself as a British person all of a sudden. Like every film he did. I think every film he did until the two James Bond movies in this were all set in the United States, right? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so so he's kind of found himself. Well, I mean, which one? Uh, Jarhead is not well, set. Yeah, but, but they were among Americans. Jarhead yeah. is set among Americans. It's obviously not set in the United States, but it's an American story. I don't know what at all. 
<laughs> what it all means exactly, but um, I did feel like the James Bond side of Mendes kind of came into play here. His immense technical skill, his sense of movement and propulsiveness. I mean, this was kind of... It felt very removed for me from the spirit of a lot of World War One movies. It didn't feel to me like particularly like an anti-war film. I felt kind of it's rousing. It's got a, there's a freedom of movement here that's really uncommon in films about this war. And it, it's all, there's also a removal from context in a way because you you are you are locked into the experience of these two. Uh, men who are on this mission and it's a very narrow mission and so what filters in from the war at large i guess is just what we take in from the landscape i suppose as they're making their way from point a to point b yeah but that landscape is what feels like the anti-war element of, of this film to me like the you know when they drop out of the trench and immediately like into the guts of one of their comrades you know crawling with rats and like there's just there's corpses everywhere they're traversing the horrors of war you know and I worry that you are getting close to implying that this is a pro-war film, and I would <laughs> strongly reject. That. No, I don't. I don't think that at all. I don't think that at all. And, and I, I, I think my favorite sequence in the movie is the one where they go to the abandoned underground mm-hmm. um, bunker, and it's in some ways remind me of a found footage horror film. Well, at the same time, also, there's sort of recognition of a shared humanity with these people they're fighting. I thought that was an interesting combination of flavors to have going at once in, in this film. This is the one with, like, the tripwire in it? And the- right, right. But, the, you know, where they're going through, like, the, the dormitories, these underground yeah. dormitories, and finding, like, little bits left over from the these German soldiers' um, private lives. And, you know, it's, it's good stuff. Right. And there's also the whole thing with Schofield's medal, with him throwing it away, and Blake. That conversation really feels like a uh, an Archie Frank dynamic playing out there, you know, with, of Blake not understanding why he doesn't want to talk about his family, why he doesn't, why he didn't keep his medal. Like, Blake has sort of this lingering idealism about the war, lingering romanticism, maybe, that, that Schofield has just been stripped of. You know, and we don't get necessarily the details of why, but I think to go back to the question we still haven't really an- answered about, about performances, I think that uh, George McKay is really effective in sort of translating what Schofield has been through without the script telling us. I think that he and Chapman both give really strong performances here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, McKay kind of has to an- anchor the film as our both our point of view character and our path through all of this. He And I think he's just tremendous, but I really miss Chapman at the point where he drops out of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as I understood that that was what was going to happen, that that was what had to happen, I already missed their dynamic because the back and forth between them was so much of what made the movie up until that point. It was what made it not feel like a video game, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just about the the one player having a, a solo experience. Watching the two of them go back and forth with their, their banter, the, the silly story about the soldier who got his ear bitten off by a rat, but also just the clash of personalities, the why did you bring me on this thing? Like, why would you do this to me? I, I thought it was going to be easy. I thought I was getting you in for some free food. All of these different little threads between them in terms of their different personalities and the way those personalities come out. I think the degree to which it's just understated and natural is so important to this film. And I, I think they both handle it pretty masterfully. 
Did everyone else recognize Dean Charles Chapman, or did you also have to go to IMDb? Only later, when I looked at who it was, who it was like, oh, yeah, of course that's who it is. He's, he's, he's Tom and Baratheon from Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> all, all, all grown so up. So we, we have both a Baratheon and a Stark in this movie. <laughs> There's got to be other Game of Thrones players on here somewhere. That, that, that show employed like every British actor for, for <laughs> seven years or whatever. Well, we don't get a whole lot of, uh, of riding around on horses, so mm. you know we don't have every stunt person from Game of Thrones. I mean, he wasn't in Game of Thrones, but I was delighted by Andrew Scott. Like it's a it's a short role, but I mean, he again to kind of go back to sort of the glimpses of of cynicism about war in this movie. I mean, he's more than a glimpse. I mean, that's just a deluge of cynicism coming at you, but he's he's so good in that in that short burst of time. That's uh, um, Lieutenant Leslie. Which character was that? Before they even leave the trench, he's the one that is basically e- expressing a healthy heaping of doubt that the Germans have actually retreated, and he gives them the the flare gun to let them know if they're actually gone. Tasha, uh, he's he's the hot priest slash. He Mor- is the Moriarty. hot priest from Fleabag. Yeah, I I knew about Moriarty, uh, but yeah, I couldn't. Uh, <gasps> you haven't seen Fleabag? I have not it's, seen it's, Fleabag. It's, it's very good. You know, I actually just started rewatching yeah. Fleabag last night. People do tell me from time to time that that show and also 367 other current shows are great <laughs> I and know. I need to watch them. Yeah. Here's the thing about Fleabag. The whole season's only three hours. You can do it. Oh, <laughs> God bless you, Britain. Uh, At the gym. The, the things you do and or teach us. I watched part of it at the gym. <laughs> I bet you did. What what don't you watch at the gym okay, these days? Okay, well, clearly I need to uh, spend more time both at the gym and uh, in the iPod store because I don't have an iPod to watch films on at the gym. iPod? iPad. iPod. Uh, I would not watch an, a film on an iPod. Fine. iPod pad, iPid, iPod, whatever. I don't care about your damn vowels, Keith. <laughs> Keith, when you go to the gym before you start working out, do you just say fast as a leopard, fast as a leopard to yourself? Um, I do now. After this episode, I, I will. What is this treadmill? A series of springs. How fast is it going to make me run? Scott, you've been doing this all night. Fast as a leopard. There we go. It's definitely time to take a break. And after this break, we'll be back to talk about the connections between Gallipoli and 1917. you hear that story about Wilco? How he lost his ear? Not in the mood. Keep your eyes on the trees. Top of the ridge. Bet he told you it was shrapnel. What was it then? Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes, Harris? Anyway... She sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet. Like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell. But he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So, he slathers it all over his barnet. Goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up. And a rat is sitting on his shoulder. Licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up and when he does, the rat bites clean through his knee and runs off with it. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I want to start with something actually really light and that's just the number of, of things that I don't know if these are... I, obviously, Sam Mendes has to have seen Gallipoli. I'm wondering if 
any of these things are were actually inspired or it's because it's coming from some of the same histories and source material. But the fact that both of them have a, a Kipling quote basically in mm. the first like 10 minutes or so uh, seems like too specific to be a complete coincidence. It was the style of the time. Um. (laughs) that and an onion in your belt but there are all all sorts of little things like the Terrence Malick uh, kind of influenced moment that we mentioned Uh, both films have a moment where there's somebody in the trenches kind of doing muscle man poses for somebody who's taking pictures and it's kind of a light moment in a, a terrible setting of here's a little tourist shot for the folks back home like here's something people who are probably not going to live out the month are taking photos you know, to remember them this this moment by as though it's a transient moment. Both films play very heavily with old photographs with people like looking at these uh, almost like daguerreotype type photos of uh, people in very stiff postures that they have with them uh, as reminiscences of their their family. Uh, these things are like very important touchstones for sentimentality that aren't commented on exactly. They're just kind of like brought out and presented and you're meant to re- read like a whole world away into these images. And both of these films also feature like a moving song before battle where the action stops and music plays and, and people gather around to listen and, and the emotion wells up. Like, are are these things all coincidences? Are they all tropes or it, are, is there an actual influence there? You talk about the moving, the moving song before battle thing is a convention. You could also go back to Paths of Glory um, at yeah. the end of that movie. And and I think there there does tend to be a moment in a lot of war films like this, especially anti-war films, where you, you get to be reminded of the common humanity of the people who are fighting for just a second, you know, where you get this kind of pause and can have this thing where they're genuinely moved. I mean, there's nothing's going to top. Paths of Glory has got another great ending <laughs> to a movie there. If you recall this this German captive that, uh, that they have who gets, you know, mocked and jeered and, and whistled at and then she starts singing this patriotic song and everyone is just comes together and in, 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 in a chorus and is, you know, kind of sort of melts, melts your heart. But, um, it's nice. It's nice to have that. It's nice to take a breather, it, you know, and it's, uh, 1917 has these those moments. Gallipoli certainly has the, most of the movie is those moments where you're you given a chance to to uh, have a little bit of peace before uh, heading into a terrifying adventure. Yeah, I, I think these are all these things you're talking about are just sort of conventions that play well within war movies because they're ways of expressing humanity within something that's so much bigger than one person one than one human you know music is just a powerful unifier in any context but especially before before battle you know i it's not unique to these films or or paths of glory i don't th- I think the idea that music almost as prayer before going into battle the one thing that is like feels specific to these two is is the kipling but maybe again that's just sort of a, a time period thing but everything else you mentioned just feels like something that stems out of these films being about war and being about real people at the center of war and having to express that amid the atrocities of of that war in succinct ways. The Kipling thing just struck me as such a particularly specific coincidence, in part because it's used so differently in these stories. Like, as, as we mentioned, the reading from The Jungle Book is meant to kind of set up this idea of, of innocence lost and manhood found. 
But in 1917, it's a, a quote from a poem, and it comes from Colin Firth's character. And it's meant in part to kind of evoke his his elitism, you know, his upper class education. It's meant as kind of a touchstone of like of who he is. He's quoting this like little snippet of of famous British poetry uh, before a battle. And that poem is also a pretty cynical poem. Mm. I mean, it's also sort of a presaging where we're going to go in the movie. Because as as he said it, down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. I thought, well, they're not traveling alone. They're, they're two men traveling together. But of course, he's giving you a little foreshadowing that it's going to be traveling alone before terribly long. So the fact that they're, if they were used in remotely like similar ways, it might feel like a trope or an echo, but it, it still to me almost feels like a specific reference. That's just maybe, for me, the biggest rhyme between these two films, apart from, you know, the obvious idea of, of men like lunging up out of the trenches to die and like the, the, just the setting, the design of the trenches and how similar they look is just how much they both rely on how young men do and don't communicate. There's so much, especially around war, there's so much in both of these films that goes unsaid specifically because young men are uncomfortable talking about their emotions with each other. They're all in this place of, of terror and danger and they very, very, rarely talk about it in any specific way. You can see it on their faces. uh, You can see it in their actions. But they have sort of like quiet moments together where they expressly don't talk about it. Or they they kind of bluffly show a, a strength that they don't feel. Sometimes they're over the top and jokey, like Frank and his pals. Uh, sometimes they're just grim and quiet, like Show and Blake dealing with their near-death experience after the tunnels, but they don't talk about it expressly. And so much of the emotion in both of these movies, to me, goes unsaid specifically because these are all men all young men who cannot express their fear in any socially acceptable way, except to gut it out and and just be tough. This is a nice contrast too in 1917 in the scene uh, in the back of the truck where Schofield has already been through so much. He's already lost his friend. He's he, the situation is extremely urgent at, the, at this point uh, in terms of the the timeline uh, to get this message across and he's in this truck that's going to lead him to where he needs to be hopefully uh they of course eventually get stuck in a in in the mud and have to you know video game their way out of that situation but like but when he's in the back back of that truck with those with those other guys there's such a contrast between how we know that he's feeling in the kind of banter that happens between men Mm. in these situations where 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 it is terrifying to be there but there's a lot of just rowdiness and guys riling each other up and i mean i think that's the kind that all feels very real i like that sequence a lot because just imagine going through the most horrific thing you've experienced in your life and then being a bunch of around a bunch of guys who are just just uh doing their best to keep it light you know yeah no, and there's and there's no way to communicate it to them. You know, he right. he can't tell them what he's just been through. It either would mean nothing to them or it would mean something to them and they'd want to shut it down because they don't want to be in the place that he is. Yeah. But he also can't really it's too new and fresh for him to take any comfort from what they're doing from the bluffness. And I think 
like even more speaking to the the amazing construction of that sequence they're all bonding by making fun of somebody he's never met and has never heard like they they all have this shared experience that they're tapping into even this foreigner who they they mock for his his foreignness his accent and his skin and his voice even he is like part of this shared experience making fun of this officer. And this is an officer that the show has never seen and, and knows nothing about. He just, he's shut out of their experience in every imaginable way. And then he creates a shared moment by expressing emotion. Like I, I was not expecting them to get the truck out of the mud. I thought that was going to be narratively how he parted from them because he had to move on and they couldn't. But instead, they're all kind of slackers and there's nobody there telling them that they have to do this work, but they see how desperate he is and yeah. they're moved by it with, again, without saying anything about it. Yeah. I mean, he eventually does have to kind of communicate to them. This is a big deal and they can see in his, in the way that he's trying to put, do this himself, desperately trying to get this vehicle out of the mud, how important it is. And so they, they, they kind of spring into action at that point, but uh, not before then. Yeah. And his, his distress and desperation comes across so clearly in that moment and so rarely otherwise, you know, because everybody in, in both of these movies is either tamped down or covering it all up with bluffness. I mean, you you think about the Gallipoli's naked swimming scene, like that's that's just some whistling past the grave. Like mm-hmm. we're here on the edge of battle. So like we're going to get naked and have some fun and then we're getting shot at and we're going to kind of turn that into a joke, too. It's all so light and playful and, again, boyish. Well, we, when men are around each other, and certainly in a situation like that, there is going to be... They get naked a lot? Well, no, I mean, there's, just, there's just a need, need to prove that you're tough, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and, yeah, and that's the problem when you and I hang out, Scott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always just trying to test <laughs> one another at, you know, arm wrestling and things like that. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot of grunting. A lot no, of yeah, very manly all, grunting. Definitely, definitely. God, we should do that. One day we, we need to do uh, Beau Travail, the, the uh, Claire Denis <laughs> film, because that takes that dynamic to its homoerotic yeah. extremes. But, you know, I mean, that's how they go to each other. I mean, they not only go to each other in this, you know, while they're on the front, but, you know, often just to get to battle as well. I mean, that's this is, I mean, I, that's, this is how, uh, you know, Archie convinces Frank to... Uh, go to war you just kind of you kind of goad him you know and you know it's just it's almost on a dare that frank ultimately you know makes this fateful decision do you guys see a homoeroticism in these movies i i feel like 1917 just doesn't have time for that like doesn't almost doesn't have time for emotional feeling apart from the the moment with the woman and the baby which let me tell you when that happened i i was like why didn't we do children of men again this was the wrong choice we've made a terrible (laughs) terrible mistake that said and i i feel bad saying it because it's the only scene in the film with a woman but i could have done without the woman and a baby in 1917 (laughs) the the feeling that the only place for a woman in this story is uh, to be cradling a baby yeah. It isn't hers. Yeah. That's, yeah. Not, that's not a very hopeful situation, ultimately. No, that's kind of terrifying. Well, but to answer your question, yeah. though, I, I, I think in some ways it's asking the wrong question because, you know, if nothing else, Warfield was talking about give it a chance to, to talk about close social bonds between men, uh, whether or not we talk about any sort of repressed sexual element to it. I mean, certainly that is a, an element that, that it's in, in many, in many war films to see Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, if you want like the best example of that, um, which is all about repressed sexual tension. But I, I think the, you know, men aren't 
really allowed to express feelings for each other in, in many outside of situations like war often in, in the cultures that in culture in which we live is particularly, you know, the culture of world war one. So I think you know, it opens up opportunities like that. I don't really feel like there's repressed desire between uh, Archie and Frank, but I think they have a very deep bond. And, and I think the, this gives it a, you know, this explores, Glipley explores that very thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, reading what I uh, quoted in the last episode about, about mateship was kind of clarifying to me because in, in reading about Gallipoli, I definitely saw some mentions of homoeroticism that I, I, I could see reading into the film, but, but knowing about this idea of mateship, of friendship that is more than just friendship, that there's this intense loyalty there was sort of clarifying in the way that that, that relationship is portrayed. And I, I think like there's, maybe a, a, a little bit of a contrast in 1917 in terms of like national identity as it affects how these young men relate to each other you know like there there is a, a little bit of you know jocular back and forth in that scene you you mentioned in, in the truck but there's also a lot of just sort of stoicism you know the proverbial stiff upper lip especially coming from show toward toward blake who comes off as the sort of the, the more puppy dog of the two of them you know and um I, like I don't feel the same sort of camaraderie between them, the same sort of affection between them that I feel between Frank and Archie, while still recognizing that there is a bond there that is formed through shared experience. I don't know. I to me, there's the Archie Frank bond is almost it's pretty close to it at first glance. I mean, it it comes almost immediately after that foot race. Uh, first they hate each other, then they love each other. Well, first they compete with each other, and then they uh, have a little meeting in a cafe where uh, Archie gives up his breakfast to make sure Frank gets a meal. I don't know. There's there's something just about the way they look at each other throughout this film, and the gladness when they re-encounter each other, and the immediate, well, you've got to come join my unit uh, thing that they do, and the, the boyish galloping away of that. The, the bond between them is clearly stronger than Frank's bond with his other friends because he does not give a single thought to abandoning those other friends and they they let him know it when he shows up with his light horseman hat with his feather in it they're like yeah well of course (laughs) they are of course they are because he's abandoned them he's abandoned them he does not think for a moment about the fact that he's abandoning them for posher digs and a, a better outfit I mean that literally. I mean the outfit that he has on, as opposed to the light horse being a better outfit. Although that also is probably <laughs> true. But uh, yeah, he comes to show off to them, and they resent it deeply. And it is one of the few places where we get to see like a strong personal emotion surface because they deeply resent him, you know, for what he's done, for what he's saying about their friendship and how little he cares for it. But his his bond with Archie is much more personal. And uh, to me, there there is like a slightly homoerotic element to that. I don't know. It feels more like admiration on Frank's part to me. Like they do share something that Frank doesn't share with his other mates. You know, they're they're both runners. But I think that, and we talked about this in, in the first half about you know what pushes Frank to follow Archie and into war. And I think that there is a sort of. I think Frank does respond to Archie's idealism, his his golden boyness. He beat him at the race, you know. Like I think there is a, a part of Frank that wants not to be Archie, but like wants certain traits that that Archie has. So I think the connection that he has to him is rooted in that 
more than desire but it's all those two things can you know tangle together in a way that again i i can see where the claims of homoeroticism come from but that's just not how i ended up reading it in the end both of these movies have a lot to say about cowardice versus courage and about the response to duty i see a pretty strong connection between blake with his willingness to just charge over the front lines and into danger for his brother like he's he's in theory doing it for these 1,599 other men who stand to die. But in part, he's he's blindly charging forward and Schofield calls him on it. You know, he, he says, like, we can wait, we can plan, we can hold this until dark. And Blake just wants to charge forward. And it feels so much like the way Archie wants to charge into war for his country without really considering the ramifications or, or worrying about the costs. There's in both cases, in both of these movies, we have people who are braver and people who are more afraid, people who, you know, hold back from what is perceived at their duty as their duty and people who kind of preachily jump into it. And in both cases, it just seems like sort of a natural way to deal with a pairing of two people is to have this this contrast between them and have it, you know, bring up some tension, both narratively and, and personally. I mean, Blake is sort of chosen for that reason, though, right? On the part of leadership, it's that's a, it's a calculation yeah. that nothing's going to put fire in the kid's belly like telling him that his brother's going to die unless he gets him that message. I mean, that's going to cause him to get there as quickly as possible, which is what they want him to do, which is another thing that ties into, to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to distance myself from this, this topic that you just brought up, but leadership is such an important part of these films. The failure of the arrogance of leadership, the failures of leadership are so critical to understanding both of these films and to understanding World War One you know, more generally and, you know, and ultimately the grunts are there at the mercy of these decisions. And Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, as an officer, if you make a mistake, you know, you made a mistake. You get promoted in Paz of Glory. Yeah, going back to Paz of Glory, <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it is just a series of decisions you make and maybe it weighs heavily on you, maybe it doesn't, depending on, on who, what your character is like. But for the men, you know, on the front lines, it, it means it means something different entirely. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you don't necessarily get a sense you know i I think with gallipoli in 1917 there's maybe a little bit more of a sense in both films that leadership does feel responsible for the people that they're sending out to war i mean it's not they're not so the films are not so cynical about that they make flawed decisions but they're not reckless uh like they are in a lot of other world war one movies where they're just not only sending people knowingly to their to their doom but then you know, in something like Passive Glory, arbitrarily punishing them in order for them to save face and get their promotion or whatever and, and move up in a leadership capacity. So there's a real cruelty there, too, and a real sense that these that these guys are disposable. As both of these films are, are dealing with leadership and leadership failures, I think it's worth noting that they both make a, a conscious separation between like the high-up leadership, the echelon of leadership that's actually making these decisions and, and sending people over the top, over the trenches, and the lower-down leadership, you know, the sergeants who are on the line, who are kind of overseeing a bunch of soldiers and making decisions for them and acting as gatekeepers between them and danger. 
you know, you have the the man who uh, stands by the dangerous spot in Gallipoli and lets people know, like, past this line, you will get shot. And he's he's like a little guardian. Like later, you see Frank have to cross that line as a shortcut to get where he needs to go as fast as possible. Um, but he's expressly told by somebody who who stands there and, and holds the gate. And it's exactly the same sort of role that Andrew Scott plays uh, as the the sergeant in charge of kind of the end of the trenches. Both of them are, are just kind of like little leaders, like little gatekeepers, uh, letting soldiers know, like, uh, past this point, abandon hope. Like, there's literally a sign that says that in Gallipoli at the end of that trench. But uh, there's, there's also these sort of like noble officer figures in, in Gallipoli. There, there's Barton, the one who is actually, you know, in the trenches with the men and, and ordering them over the line and in and, and the third wave decides to, to go over with them. But he's the one who's, you know, on the phone tr- with the officer making this bad call, you know. And then I, I think like the Mark Strong character in 1917 is, is, is a little that too, sort of the buffer between the the grunt and the the higher up officer but it strikes me like as as we're talking this out that both of these films and this is maybe just the most straightforward connection between them is that they're movies where grunts privates uh low-ranking military are sent on a mission to correct the bad decisions of officers you know and it's it happens over a much shorter span of time in, in Gallipoli, you know, and it's a literal like race back and forth through the, through the trenches. But it's sort of just like a compression of what happens in 1917 of like sending this message to stop a massacre. And in neither case are they entirely successful. Um, in 1917, arguably, he's slightly more successful. But as already mentioned, there's still a, a, a ton of casualties. So sort of the idea of like correcting the poor choices of leadership through the blood, sweat and tears of soldiers. Are these films both equally anti-war films? That's tough because I mean, you know, we're, we're inevitably have to grapple with the Truffaut quote about anti-war, which I have I have queued up here because it often gets misquoted. I think it's something he may have said a couple of different times, but but it comes originally or most famously from an interview with Gene Siskel uh, of our own uh, Chicago, um, on town of Chicago, um, from 1973, where he says, Siskel asks, there's very little killing in your films. How come? Um, <laughs> Truffaut, Blunt. Truffaut, Blunt and Siskel-y. Truffaut says, I find that violence is very ambiguous in movies. For example, some films claim to be anti-war, but I don't think I've ever really seen an anti-war film. Every film about war ends up being pro-war. And then Siskel follows up, even a film like Kubrick's Paths of Glory or his Dr. Strangelove, to which Truffaut replies, yes, I think Kubrick likes violence very much. And then there's <laughs> the whole side where Siskel talks about how he had to grapple with this for weeks and then eventually found himself agreeing with him. But, you know, I think there's something to this because there you can think of, of the wave of from Apocalypse Now through Platoon and, and so on about these these horrific depictions of war and all their violence. That That's goes all the way back to at least uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a horrifically violent film yeah. of suddenly uh, it really depicts the horrors of warfare down to like, you know, you never sleep because the bombing never stops. But at the same time, you, re- you read the book Jarhead and, and Anthony Swafford talks about how 
he and the other or the soldiers would get would get pumped up by or in, in training at least get pumped up about being soldiers by watching these same movies. Full Metal yeah. Jacket included yeah. when Arlie Army died. Swafford had an editorial in the New York Times about how Full Metal Jacket made his generation hungry to go to war. Yeah, and so you kind of wonder if maybe there's some maybe maybe they're you know intent aside they they can't be. But I, that being said, I feel like Gallipoli is there's no romanization of the actual fighting. I think it's there's romanization of the men who do the fighting. But I think it's the most the bluntest depiction I've seen about how sometimes you die your, your first time you go to battle. And that's just the way it is. It's hard to feel, you know, you that's something you want to experience, you want to do when there's so little excitement. It's just instant death. Well, and, and Gallipoli just engages so much with the idea of enticement to war. Like so much of its mm-hmm. story is about showing how young men are frankly tricked into going to war, you know? I think the the Truffaut criticism could maybe be leveled at 1917 a, a, a little more and maybe Scott that's what you were getting at earlier when I when I bristled it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but again, like I just the way that death just hangs over that movie, just the the way corpses are literally like embedded in the landscape they're traversing. I don't think of 1917 is a particularly violent movie. I think of it as a a death-obsessed movie, but I don't think it's necessarily reveling in violence. The, the violence that we do get is like these sort of shock moments, but you're not pummeled with it. Yeah, I guess my hang-up, though, with 1917 is that if you are a soldier and you are imagining a best-case scenario for what your war experience might be, being able to traverse this no man's land on this extraordinarily consequential life-saving mission and being able to accomplish it, being able just to move in World War One at all, to get out of the trenches, to be out in the open, to take action, it doesn't leave that the, the kind of impression that a more strictly anti-war film would leave. Whereas Gallipoli, it's like Gallipoli is almost like a war version of of Scatman Crothers in <laughs> The Shining of just like he's going to go on this and he's going to you know the kid's going to summon him and we watch him take this incredible difficult arduous journey to the overlook just to get you know axed by Jack Nicholson and um you know spoiler now oh, people know that goodness gracious I can't be doing <laughs> They've that They've watched the film on so their it's, it's on the iPad it's a 40 it's year Jim. it's they a know. 40 year old film Statue of Limitations has passed so I mean I don't want to be glib about it again but there is kind of a, a level of excitement and achievement to 1917 um, and also you know it, it it doesn't feel as gritty or as grim as a lot of other war films do to me. I don't agree with that, but I think maybe where the the issue lies with 1917 is, I mean, this is a film intended to honor Sam Mendes' grandfather, you know, there, so there is this sort of element of glorification happening of the brave soldier. So I think that is where this element is coming from. So I understand that reading, especially in the context of celebrating heroism. But in, again, this is just my reaction to the film and maybe just sort of my, my squeamishness with, with gore and death. But, you know, I was so affected by the way that bodies are strewn across this film in very sort of matter of fact ways that, to my mind, just uh, is, is very clarifying about the reality of war. That was my reaction. Your your mileage may vary. 
Well, you can decide for yourself. Uh, 1917 is currently in theaters. Gallipoli is available free on Amazon Prime for people who already subscribe. It's also available for rental for non-subscribers. It's widely available on a number of streaming services, and it's available on DVD startlingly cheaply. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, as I've, as I've said in, in the, last, the last couple of weeks, I was really immersed in World War One movies. I wrote a piece for The Guardian, which you can look up, about that was pegged to 1917 about, about history of World War One movies, some of the more significant ones, what they have to say about the war Uh, i didn't do it as a list i did it kind of as an essay and i was uh, pretty happy with the way it turned out but i I was able to catch a couple of classic films really early classic films that were made in the wake of the war that i'd never seen before and that kind of blew me away uh the first was uh, the big parade uh from 1925 this is a king vidor movie about this character who named who's a, a sort of a lazy american aristocrat uh, who's sort of coaxed by his father into uh, into the Great War? He and a couple of you know working class dudes he, he befriends. They all go off to France, and in the film spends a tremendous amount of time. I mean, maybe Gallipoli like you know, just getting to the war. I mean, it, 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 he ends up having this affair, or, or, or there's a sort of this love story involving him and a French woman. They don't speak the same language, but they speak the language of love. And uh, and you get a really beautiful farewell scene between the two of them. And then, and then it gives you extraordinarily well-staged action a march through the the, the woods that's that's really dr- dramatic where the where they go to confront the germans a very harrowing um scene at, at in the evening where they're in this uh trench under cover of darkness but be but told that they have to to try to take that da- take out a german machine gun nest and um and, and, and there's a realization among these three guys that that whoever volunteers for this assignment is probably not coming back and uh, it's a very, very, very big moving film. Um, and then I saw All, All Quiet on the Western Front, which I'd never seen. And uh, it's I, one of the great, one of the great war films I've ever seen. Easily, I, I, I couldn't believe how bluntly anti-war and yet artful and humane the film was. I mean, it really presents World War One as an act of grand scale nihilism, <laughs> where these German students are told by their instructor or rallied by their their teacher to join the cause and they're shipped to the front lines on uh, promises of glory and all they experience is just is just endless days and unending horror you know and our hero comes back to the same classroom later in the movie and the same teacher is trying to present him as a hero and trying to convince a younger set of kids to do the same thing that he did and for what reason it is just so sharp so powerful beautifully shot on an absolutely epic scale uh, one best picture. So I mean, it's a it's a great pick. It's a yeah. it's a great best picture winner. I saw that one recently for the first time too, um, and uh, it kind of blew me away too. And and oh, we mentioned stretched by Lewis Milestone. I think my only complaint with this version is that some of the it's a very early sound, yeah, early film, sound, yeah. And some of the actors are having are still acting for the silent for silent film. Yeah, no, it's um, not. It's blunt. It is blunt. Very very blunt and very. Uh, but who was the guy who played the sergeant? Who I, I looked him up. He died not too long 
after the film was made. He was also on the front page. Anyway, he was, anyway. He was great. Yeah, no, it's, but, it's, it's a very, very good movie. And one, one thing about that also, I mean, for, for my complaints about the, some of the acting being not quite at the speed with the sound, with the sound era, the sound is, is aggressive and, and, yeah. and, and assaultive in that, in that film. The actual sound of warfare, it's, it's amazing, yeah, used and, amazingly. And one of the problems with the early sound movies is that, is that the camera didn't move yeah, it's not very that much, but this is not that ca- the case because there's so much action in the film. And when, and when you are out of, out of a, a dialogue scene, when you are in the field, it's got all of the, the dynamism that you expect and, and love in, in late silent films. It's got, the camera's all over the place, and it's really exciting. So, uh, yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front and The Big Parade. Uh, I enjoyed them very much. What about you, Genevieve? Uh, okay, well, I'm going to take us away from more movies to some, for something completely different. Uh, I want to talk about a 2019 documentary that I recently caught up with called The Biggest Little Farm, uh, which is a sort of feature-length video essay by John Chester, an Emmy-winning wildlife filmmaker who, about eight years ago, quit the business to start an organic, sustainable farm in California with his wife, Molly, a traditional foods chef and blogger. The film covers the first few years of their operation, which is called Apricot Lane Farms, and is now a thriving success, but began as this sort of harebrained scheme on their parts to revive 200 acres of dried-out farmland via a commitment to biodiversity and restoring a natural, self-sustaining ecosystem, one where crops and livestock are able to coexist alongside pests and predators. Uh, Oh, by the way, and they had zero farming experience when they set out to do this. Uh, The film makes clear again and again that this is far from the norm in modern agriculture and is arguably a little self-congratulatory in the way it presents Apricot Lane as this bastion of forward-thinking farming philosophy. Uh, But it makes up for that tendency by illustrating just the avalanche of challenges the Chesters had to face to get there, literal years of trial and error and uncertainty on their parts. Uh, But what really struck me about the film was the form it takes, which is sort of this series of stories built around each built around a different animal, which flow into each other in a manner that illustrates the idea that every resident of the farm from the human farmers right on down to the gophers and snails who infiltrate their orchards has a role to play if this project is going to be truly self-sustaining. Uh, the challenge is figuring out what that role is and how to implement it. And one of the pleasures of The Biggest Little Farm is seeing those solutions form and play out. And given Chester's background in wildlife photography, those challenges and solutions are portrayed in a really lovely, often impressionistic way that keeps the natural world at the center of the story, with the Chesters themselves acting more like supporting players. Uh, The film has narration from John that gives it a sort of diary-like feel, but there are no talking heads or outside experts coming in to analyze what we're seeing, which gives the film this really intimate feeling and complements its ideas about the interconnectivity of the natural world and humans' place in it. Uh, It's a film that clearly sets out to be inspiring, and whether you feel that inspiration is probably going to be a matter of how much you connect to what the Chesters are doing with this project, Uh, but it definitely worked on me, so I'm going to recommend The Biggest Little Farm, which is streaming for free on Amazon Prime if you're a subscriber, and uh, rentable pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, you know, I I have to say, you know, Neon, who which distributed this mm-hmm. film, that film, I mean, 2019 was an absolutely <laughs> absolutely astonishing year for for this yeah. company. This company put out that movie, Parasite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Honeyland, Amazing Grace, Apollo 11. I mean, that is a you know, Manos, Loose, you know, Clemency, you know, The Beach Bum. It's got they have everything. It's like that is a huge lineup. I mean, we we talk about A24 as this sort of like 
as the model of a boutique company. But man, Neon gave them a run for their money in 2019, no? It was a, a pretty exciting day when the uh, screener booklet for that showed up. Yeah. It was it was not the most exciting screener season for critics this year, but uh, Neon just sent a booklet with every film that you just mentioned in it. Unreal. <laughs> And I was like, this is this is a feast. Tasha, what about you? Well, I'll try to keep this short because uh, there's there's a lot to it. I feel like it would be criminal of me, given that we're talking about 1917, to not point out that if you liked George McKay in this film, uh, you should see Marrowbone, which I believe I recommended on a previous Next Picture show. It's the horror film where he and his uh, younger siblings are all trying to pretend that their mother hasn't died so they can stay together and keep their estate. Uh, but there's something dreadfully wrong uh, in the on that estate. There's a, a presence that's haunting them because of something they did due to a break in the story that's not entirely unlike the break in the story that happens in 1917. McKay is just a, a, an amazing performer, especially for somebody so young. He just he brings across so much in his kind of simultaneous attempts to portray emotion and repression of emotion. And everything he brings to 1917, he also brings to Marrowbone. I love it. It's a very under-released and underseen film. It's one of those films that uh, a very few people have seen because of me talking it up on this podcast. And several of them have come back to me to say, thank you so much for recommending this film. So which by the way, it feels like there's been an uptick in that lately, and I cannot say how thrilled I am when people actually come up, come around and say, I saw this film because of you, and thank you for it, because I love it. Uh, but Marabone is one of those movies that I'm just going to stump for into eternity. It's so well-crafted, it's so well-executed, and McKay is a huge part of that. In the same sort of uh, vein, in terms of movies I will stump for forever, if you like the continuous shot uh, idea in a film, <laughs> and you want to see one that was actually continuously shot, coming. as opposed to the the faux continuous shot mm-hmm. thing done here, Sebastian Shipper's Victoria, still a, a huge favorite of mine. And it's just, it's an impeccably constructed single shot feature film uh, put together on the, the streets of Berlin uh, extremely early in the morning. It's a story about a woman who goes to a club, meets some guys, follows that thread where it leads, ends up in some rather horrible trouble. Uh, there's there's violence, there's beauty, there's music, there's dancing, there's emotion, there's hiding from emotion. All sorts of things happen, but it's it's all literally done in a single shot. And I interviewed Shipper for RogerEbert.com uh, back when the film came out, and he said he couldn't get the film in, into festivals because nobody believed it. They thought that he was lying to, to gain admission and they didn't want to fall for it. But this really is a film constructed as a long journey in tonight around a single shot. And it, again, yeah, it might be a little distracting the first time you see it as you're you're trying to figure out what's going to come next, how the story could take the natural escalation of story to the next level while still maintaining the single shot, whether there's a point where it's all going to fall apart. Uh, it features a just a tremendous central performance from Laia Costa as the eponymous Victoria. It's a beautiful film, and it's just an amazing piece of film craft. Scott, you've been nodding this entire time. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, you're a shipper shipper. <laughs> I, I'm not a shipper for him. I, I don't have anybody I'm shipping know, him with. But, but I, I, I remember that actor, Lyle Costa, was in um, a movie called Duck Butter. <laughs> <laughs> a little movie called Duck Butter. 
But uh, I, I've I have always intended to see that film, Tasha, on your recommendation. I've failed repeatedly. Finally, I don't know whether it's still going to be in theaters by the time uh, this podcast comes out because we're recording so far in advance for a change. But uh, for fans of Your Name, back in 2016, the the Japanese film about uh, a boy and girl experiencing each other's lives across time. I like that movie. Yeah, as well you should. It, it was a fantastic film. The writer-director, Makoto Shinkai, has a new one out in theaters. It's a G-Kids release, so it will be available on streaming and DVD uh, fairly shortly in your choice of uh, voiced by celebrity version or original subtitled version. But as we're recording this, it's about to hit theaters. And because it's a limited release, I'm going to live in the hope that it's going to have like a slow enough rollout that people might still be able to catch it in theaters by the time this comes out because much like your name it's something you can watch at home but you should watch in theaters uh the music in this film is is stunning it's stunningly moving but the visuals my god the movie story is about a a young man who runs away and and moves to tokyo and is trying to survive and he meets a young woman who literally has the power to create sunshine when she prays she can stop the rain and and bring sun into people's lives for a short period of time it's a supernatural story but it's also very metaphorical but what matters almost isn't the story it's how impeccably beautiful the the cinematography is this world is so well developed it reminds me of studio ghibli's movies just in terms of the way in a studio ghibli movie when people sit down to a feast you can see like the individual droplets of oil on the the sheen of the surface surface of a fatty soup um you can see the the texture of the wood grain in the the furniture that is what this movie is like. There was a point in Weathering With You where a man is standing in a bathroom uh, doing something in the mirror, shaving or brushing his teeth, something like that. I don't remember because I, I didn't notice. I was so busy looking at the texture of the crimping on the plastic bottles of uh, you know bathroom substances on the counter in front of him. This movie is so much about crowded, claustrophobic spaces full of amazingly detailed things and and vast cityscapes and the rain coming down and the detail of all of these things it is literally one of the most beautiful movies i've ever seen mm. and it's emotionally moving it's a, a very unique story very well told in the japanese style of, of kind of like huge overblown emotions about young love and what it feels like to be a, a young boy experiencing his first welling feelings of, of pure love for a young girl but on top of, of all of the structure and the, the very strange story movements uh, that happen, it's just, it's an experience for the theater. It's a, a feast for the eyes and the soul. So Weathering With You and those other two movies, Maribona and Victoria. Keith, what about you? Well, it's a qualified recommendation of a, of a, of a troubled, imperfect film. But we love those, right? We love the troubled, oh, yeah. imperfect, compelling films. So um, much. So in, uh, in 1984, uh, Francis Ford Coppola was... was you know, wasn't that a high point in his career? He had some some money troubles. Uh, Zoe Trope was uh, was uh, his studio was was in big trouble. One from the heart was not not a hit, to put it mildly. Um, he needed a hit, so he took a job with his old producer Robert Evans, who had a dream project about the Cotton New York Cotton Club uh, side of uh, jazz and crime. And uh, from a story originally penned by Mario Puzo, so it's the whole Godfather team back together. But mm-hmm. it, it's a deeply troubled production. 
in which, uh, you know, there were uh, Coppola and, and Evans had a falling out. There was there was a murder of one of the financiers. Uh, you can read all about that somewhere. Um, anyway, the film came out. It wasn't a great hit. And it wasn't that well-received. And it kind of was sort of something that, that, that probably Coppola completists would watch uh, and, and no one else. Um, but Coppola is not one to let his old films go, as as we know from the many the three the three different cuts of Apocalypse. Now, mm-hmm. uh, he the story goes he found a Betamax copy of his original cut and uh, decided, you know what, the world needs to see this. And it, actually, the, the, he released briefly to theaters um, and played some festivals uh, as co- the Cotton Club colon Encore. Uh, this this is the the version that's now available on on DVD and Blu-ray, and only available to rent through Apple. And apparently, this is the only version of the film you can stream anywhere. Mm. Um, I had never seen the old version. I saw this. It is not. It is an imperfect. It is still an imperfect film, but and it's you know uh, comparisons to The Godfather do it no favor. And the characters are much less compelling than that. The story is less compelling, but there's a whole lot to like about it. I mean, it's just an incredibly well-made film with some neat performances in it. Uh, and Bob Hoskins and Fred Gwynn are, are, are play like a, a, a pair of, of criminals uh, who, who work together. And, and just the visual of Hoskins standing next to Gwynn is itself uh, kind of is pretty delightful. <laughs> a different height, height, height um, difference there. And I read Odie Henderson's review of this at RogerEber.com where he described what was added and what was taken out. And it's like, oh, all my favorite parts weren't in the original version, which mm-hmm. was um, a lot more musical sequence, a lot more balance between, there's basically two romances at the center of this movie, uh, one between Richard Gere and Diane Lane, the other between Gregory Hines and Lynette McKee. And uh, unshockingly, the studio decided, uh, let's put let's emphasize the white characters more than the black characters. So this kind of restores that balance. Um, it's got it's got great stuff in it. It's 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 not a perfect movie. It's a movie I end up liking quite a bit and would definitely recommend. Particularly if you if you've seen other you know if you like Coppola, if you like jazz music, if you like beautiful costumes and and you know um, I don't know gunfire that's in there too. Uh, Scott, you've seen the original. Yeah, but not, I've, not I've seen version. the original, but not the encore. So um, yeah. and, and the original is indeed. I can loan it to you. I would I would like that I would like to see the encore version because the original it's just it's just flat uh, you know it's just it fundamentally doesn't move like a god like the Godfather the stories the you know Godfather is is full of anecdotes and little little crime stories and things that, that kind of give it life and this one just doesn't quite get there mm. um, but I, I I love to look at it and I loved certain sequences Gregory Hines is tap dances i believe There's a lot more gregory hines and gregory hines's brother terrific um is maurice hines when they play brothers in the film too a lot of there's a whole like um double number that's apparently not in the original cut yeah i'm looking forward to it for sure that about wraps it up yeah that does about wrap it up that is a lot for people to watch so we will close up here and let them get on with it And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out February 11th and 18th. Scott, what is coming up next? Uh, So in 1993, Australian director Jane Campion won the Palm Dome at the Cannes Film Festival The Piano, a feminist love story set against a repressive period backdrop. Flash forward 26 years later, and French director Céline Sciamma caused a sensation of her own in Cannes with Portrait of a Lady on Fire also a feminist love story set against a repressive period backdrop. Both films are about protagonists who express themselves through art, and both are about how they negotiate freedom in a world that's set to squash their desires. On the next episode of The Next Picture Show, 
We'll compare these canned sensations and how they use the distant past to comment on the present. In the meantime, we would love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Gallipoli, 1917, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work on um, uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR, uh, The Ringer, and other fine outlets. Keith? You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can find my work at Vulture. You can find my work at The Ringer, Rolling Stone, Fangoria, Mel. Uh, covers it. That's the place I'm working for right now, but you know. I'm out there. Tasha, how about you? You can find me at polygon.com where I'm the film and TV editor. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already... Please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Come find us on Twitter and let us know if you watch movies we recommend. We always love to hear about your experiences. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. I want to crown of glory when I get home to that bright land I want to shout salvation story in concert with that blood wash band I'm Savior to sing his praise.